0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Hey, I'm John Fouché, the new executive pastor here. Uh, It's really enjoyable to start working here. I've been here a month. I'm new, and I don't know most of you, but I know many of you. It's been a really different experience. I've really enjoyed getting to meet people and, uh, and spend time with people. But let's just be honest, it's not the same. I'm sitting here in an empty room for the most part, and uh, it is not the same. Last week, something interesting happened to me. I was here, I was listening to Jeff uh, preach his sermon on Sunday morning, and I walked out the back doors to go to my office, and I went by the kitchen And something strange was something stunk. And I went back to my office and I came back by the kitchen. I'm like, what is that? And I walked in the lobby. It was there, too. And, you know, it's been a while since the building's been fully cleaned. And I thought, oh, gosh, we really need to get somebody up here cleaning this. And then I, I walked into this room and I still smelled it. I was like, what is it? I just, it was totally strange to me. And I actually said that out loud. What is that? And all of a sudden he hit me. It's body odor. And then he hit me. It's my mask. <laughs> so I had COVID two months ago. And since I Uh, I've had COVID. Apparently, I have not washed this particular mask for two months. And I will tell you, if you don't wash your mask, it's not a good idea. And you'll know it sooner or later. I also want to say, if you've met with me uh, in the last month or so, and you thought I literally stunk, you probably were right. And I just want you to know, I've washed it. We're clean. I don't stink most of the time. Uh, I would welcome another first impression. This morning, we're going to jump into our scripture in Exodus 32, and we're going to talk about this stink. And we're going to say, where is the stink, and what's the source of it? And, uh, and we're going to jump into this. We've been studying uh, kind of a flyover of the Bible, um, and many of you are reading along with that. If you get our weekly newsletter, you can sign up for that if you haven't already, it's on the version or Bible app, and you're able to make comments. It's been really fun uh, as we've been reading this together. We're in Exodus, and uh, you should be on day 26. And today, this week you're going to read weeks or days 26 through 30 for everybody who's staying in the same pace. We do ask you to be at the same pace so that we can traffic in the same Scriptures at the same time. So... If you're not uh, connected, you're not on this, but you want to be, it's, a, it's really encouraging and it's really helpful to be uh, reading scripture every day with people. It's great for me to get to know names. If you're new, it would be great for you to do that too. You just want to go to the bottom of the Oak City Church webpage, oakcitychurch.com, sign up for the weekly email, and there you'll be able to set it up. On that weekly email, you'll also see that I'm going to start a men's group on Tuesday morning starting February 23rd and going to the end of April. Basically, we haven't, from what I'm told, have a lot happening with men. And there are men that are wanting to meet either in person or over Zoom to really talk together and to spend time together. So we're going to study the characteristics of a godly man. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, assess our lives and kind of come up with a game plan of how we can grow. So, you can check out all that and other announcements on the weekly email. So again, if you have your Bibles or apps, open them up to Exodus 32. Let me give you a little context of what's happened. God has delivered uh, the Hebrews out of Egypt. He has completely removed them from slavery and they're now... Uh, in a place where they're about to start a wilderness wandering, but it's the time when God says, let's meet. His presence shows up in Exodus 19, some of you read that, and the people are afraid to meet with God. So only Moses and Joshua go. While they're gone, something happens, and it's a big deal. It's a big moment in Scripture, and it's right here in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. So read along with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, who's in charge here? Well, obviously the people. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So they're worried, they're afraid, they're feeling leaderless. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now this is the plunder from the Egyptian aristocracy that God allowed them to take. These were ultimately gifts from God To them, So that they would have a little bit of capital as they went to the promised land. But let's see what they do with this gift. Verse 4. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now this is an Egyptian god. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord. You know, Aaron's like, uh-oh, we've gone back to Egypt. Well, let's build something to God. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So today is Egyptian God Day. Tomorrow is God, Yahweh, the Lord Day. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to, this time, the Lord. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word play has sexual connotations. Uh, Paul describes this. This is what's going on with the group. It becomes a wild party, and especially on the second day, to the Lord. But the first day was to their old God, the Egyptian God. Now, honestly, like the foreign stink that hit me, uh, this text is a little bit foreign to us. Idolatry is is just foreign. We just kind of think it's ancient. We just kind of think it's kind of of the religion yesteryear. We think we've just gotten past that. But I promise you, if an ancient came to us today, he would be able to look at my life and say, "Oh, you're you're an idolater for sure." He would walk into my uh, office back over here or at home in my basement and say, there's your gods. You've built a shrine to your gods. As I started to reflect on this, I like it. It's true. Once a year at least, I go and make a pilgrimage, you know, to the temple. And at the temple, I wear my priestly garments. I throw down my gold. I worship my God. And at the University of Texas Longhorns wins, I am so happy. I'm telling you, I worship a cow. (laughs) But when they lose, my life is terrible. Every year, my oldest and I say, this could be the year. And every year, the Oklahoma Sooners take away that hope. The gods of Oklahoma somehow stole all the gifts from Texas, the recruits, and then turn around and beat us. It just drives me nuts. You know, years ago, I drove my two little boys through Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We went by the temple, the stadium there. And then my five-year-old said, "Dad, I think people love Alabama football more than God." <laughs> like they do. And that's the definition of idolatry. Romans: 125 says, "Taking a created thing and putting it over." Uh, the Creator. So we take a gift that the Creator gave us, and we take that thing and we put it above God. And, you know, the first two commandments say, you shall worship only the Lord and you shall not make any idols. And we do that with football. Now, many of you worship wolves. Many of you worship rams. A few of you go to the number one worship venue here in the triangle, and worship a blue devil, okay? Like you do, okay? Just, I mean, if that's not a worship venue, and I don't know what else. We worship other things. Uh, many of us worship the donkey or the elephant. On Fourth of July, we worship the eagle. Uh, we worship Wall Street's bear, Ferrari's horse, Playboy's bunny, and right now we are bowing our knees, asking for a medicine that is symbolized by Hermes' staff with two stakes going up and wings on top to give us a vaccine so that we could be saved. That is, this is really a lot more in us. In fact, we're completely swimming in it. We just don't call it idolatry. It's the same thing. So uh, we need to realize that most of us think that we're basically good But the scripture says, no, this idolatry is an issue for all of us. So we're constantly taking God's order and switching things. A created thing, we're worshiping that instead of God. So the stink may be foreign to us when you first read this, the idolatry, but it's not really. So I want to show you a little bit what the stink looks like. If you look at this slide, uh, there, there is two things that's going on here. The longer we go through Scripture and the longer we go through our lives, we have a growing awareness of God's holiness. We also have a growing awareness of our sinfulness. And these two things just keep getting wider and wider and wider. The longer the narrative of Scripture grows, we realize the gap between us and God is huge. We realize that at the source of our sin is idolatry. And the older we get, the more we realize, gosh, I I really am off. My motives are really off. This is a helpful thing for us to just start seeing that what Scripture lays out is true. Now, a lot of us will read the text, especially what we're about to read, and say, I got a problem with God. I mean, isn't, isn't the stink God too? And so let's jump into that. Let's read the next few verses. Exodus 7, verses 14. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people, called your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. It's like my wife when she says, your son is way off. Go deal with your son. Verse 8. They had turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They had made for themselves a golden calf of all things, an Egyptian god, and worshipped it worshiped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They've totally discarded Yahweh, the Lord. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. Wow. But Moses implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people from whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a great and a mighty hand? So, So he's asking why, but he's going to the character of God. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, as much as we read this, and as much as we want to sympathize and understand, uh, but a lot of us are saying, "Yeah, I just don't like God's wrath." I-, I think that is fair for probably all of us. It probably should be fair for all of us. We don't like it. Jeff said last week, we embrace our own wrath, but resist God's wrath because we trust our own sense of good and evil more than we trust his. That's what he said. And I think that's absolutely right. So let's define wrath. Wrath is an emotional response to sin that seeks to bring justice. You have wrath when you experience injustice. You do and I do too. In the same way, wrath is an emotional response to sin that seeks to bring justice, and this applies to God as well. God is all about love and justice. He's about those completely. But but he's not about one to the exclusion of the other. God loves the ma- nations. In fact, right here in the law in Deuteronomy 20 God says, go be a blessing to all the nations. He even describes how they are only to farm part of their field, but leave their edges unfarmed, leave their crops in the field for the refugees and immigrants from other nations so that they could be able to take care of themselves. In other words, he's saying, forego some of your business profit and give it, bless the nations with it. Well, uh, you, at the same time, we read this and say, yeah, but like God wants to utterly destroy his own people. I mean, what is up with that? Why, why should that be the case? Well, many of us also reading the book of Joshua this week are looking at this holy world and thinking, why are we executing uh, Canaanites? Like, what is going on? Well, God's about love, but he's also about justice. This is not a genocide in this holy war because a couple things. One, Genesis fifteen sixteen. those of you that started the Bible reading earlier might remember the verse that said to where God is saying to Abraham, I will give you this land, but the Amorite sin is not yet complete. It's one of the groups in Canaan at the time. He's like, it's still not complete. He's basically saying these people are in sin and man, were they ever. But he allows that to go on for 400 years. Now, that's much more forgiving than you and I would be. Let me tell you why. The Canaanites were like the Nazis, okay? These people were not just immoral. They were heinous. They were involved in child sacrifice. And for us to watch God delay for 400 years would have bothered all of us. But what he did was he delayed judgment. And even when they're coming in the land, like in Jericho that we read this week, there is a call for repentance. Rahab and her family are saved because they helped. They turned switched sides from Jericho and their gods to to Israel and his God. Um, you know, also they marched around the city seven times, giving the opportunity for them to repent. But what actually happened is The people in Jericho didn't. Now, this is like all the men of Raleigh and surrounding suburbs, 600,000 men walking around Little Smithville, North Carolina. Now, if you were in Smithville, you might need to think, hey, maybe we need to, like, change our ways. Uh, But that did not happen. They were insistent to keep going. Now, it is fair to say there is language here That is uh, like striking, and it is. So, for example, in um, Deuteronomy 7, God is saying, I want you on the Canaanites to totally destroy them. Leave no survivors and kill all that breathe. I mean, it is disturbing. But in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 7, as well elsewhere, uh, there is the command not to intermarry. There's also the command not to have business partners with these foreigners. Which means that these words of totally destroyed, no survival, all that breathe are hyperbole. Uh, because there was, obviously you're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to have to worry about whether you would be a business partner or marry somebody if you could, utterly destroyed them. So there is hyperbole here. But I will say, on God's justice and judgment, God doesn't see the need to totally uh, answer to us and not every passage is completely explained what's going on. So you could definitely, as you study it, you'll learn many more things that helps you realize, okay, the Canaanites are like the Nazis. This is a bad people. Uh, so keep pursuing your scripture and keep looking at the way the original audience would read it. But you've got to realize it's not often asking the questions that you and I might be asking because, honestly, we have different assumptions we're bringing to the text. For example, we love the idea of tolerance in our culture, especially majority culture. We love the idea of tolerance. And we think we could just vote in a law that says don't worry about this part of Christianity or Judaism or Islam. Let's coexist. Let's just vote out all these con- some of these concepts and let's vote in a way for us to co- coexist. Well, As much as the end goals of tolerance are of love and unity is good, it totally has no answer to the problem of justice. Tolerance doesn't. And uh, we can accept tolerance, but we cannot when we have been violated. For example, in eighth grade, one day I saw Debbie, and she was cute. I asked Debbie to be my girlfriend, and she said yes. The next day, I saw Misty. <laughs> she was cute. <laughs> and I asked Misty to be my girlfriend, and she said yes. Right? So what's what's going on here? The next day, Misty and Debbie came to me. This is a true story. And said, you idiot. You jerk. Not only will we not be your girlfriends, but we're telling everybody in school, and on the next day, everybody in school, and just totally shun me. Now, for me, I could have said, hey, let's all be tolerant. I mean, three consenting middle schoolers, we could do this. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way because law is not necessarily uh, always voted on like in civil laws. Sometimes these laws are more like natural laws. And I was tapping into a natural law that we all have that you need to be faithful to the one you love. And there's a natural law with that. Otherwise, they would have never cried injustice, right? So, for example, you know, civil law is where, for example, let's say you have two streets coming together, and the city, uh, a city group, planning group, gets together and says, okay, we've got a lot of traffic coming in with these two streets, Uh, We're going to need to take out these yield signs, put in a four-way stop signs. All in favor say aye, and the committee all says aye. They go out, they change the stop signs, but do a four-way stop, and it brings better control and order to uh, those streets. Well, you can imagine uh, if that suddenly uh, highway came by and totally displaced that traffic, that same committee could get together and say, okay, we don't have much traffic anymore. All in favor of making two of these signs yield, say aye. Everybody say aye. And they come out and they swap out the stop sign and yields would be there and it would help better for the congestion that had built up from a four-way stop. So this is civil law. We often think we can just vote in uh, ideas or new morals like civil law. But there's a universal law. I mean, you can get that committee together and say, okay, we're going to vote on the fire. All in favor of the fire not burning you, say aye. Everybody say aye. It's passed, approved. Great. The next day you put your hand in the fire and it burns. Why? Because it's a natural law. The Ten Commandments are God's natural law. If you put something that's a created thing over the Creator, things will break down for you. If you put your spouse above God. After a while, you'll start worshiping your spouse, but when your spouse doesn't love you, your life is ruined. And when your spouse leaves you, uh, you could be completely demolished because your God has failed you. So it could be good things, gifts from God. But when we switch the order, that's it. Or we're like Debbie and Misty. We could say uh, that we should not commit adultery but when we just try to just invent new morals, uh, that w- and we treat it like civil law, uh, we keep bumping up against the fact that that's just not the way life rolls, which is actually really hopeful to me when we start just voting in and out different morals or different standards. Well, it's interesting because uh, tolerance has the end goal of love, but it has no answer to the problem of injustice. Here's the deal. Moses is not asking the same questions that we are. We're asking, does God stink? Right? Because I don't like his wrath. But Moses is not asking that at all. In fact, Moses' question comes back to the character of God. It's belief in God. It's belief in his holiness, in his goodness, in his love. And, uh, And that's what we see here that Moses doesn't ask the same questions. Why? Can I tell you why? Because he was a slave. Because we've got millions of people here that were slaves, that suffered injustice. You know, one of the groups that often ask and champions tolerance are those in the majority in our culture. But those in the minority, especially the African-American church historically, has never really bowed their knee as much to a God of tolerance. Now, I'm not saying African-Americans don't do that a lot more today. But in the church, African-Americans have really resonated with the Exodus story. Why is that? Of course. They were slaves. They were longing for deliverance. They have faith in God. And, of course, they saw that deliverance. An African-American would look at this text and say, How dare that former slave go back to his old, mean, unjust master and worship him? How much of a spit in the face would this be to the one that had set them free? And so they wouldn't be asking the same questions we're asking. We're asking these questions because this is where we're coming from. You know, in this country, there was something called the Slave Bible. And the Slave Bible was a Bible that was given to slaves from slave masters. But they cut out a lot of the Bible. In fact, the whole book of Exodus was gone because they didn't want their slaves to get the idea that they could be set free. And while we don't necessarily, we're not actively removing the God of judgment from our uh, Bibles or wanting anybody else's Bible to be changed, many of us, we still, often as whites especially, but majority culture in general, have trouble with the wrath of God because we do not experience injustice to the same level as those that have been issued it. Those that have experienced injustice realize that, What's going on here is an offense to God, to their deliverer. Imagine saying, today we're going to worship my slave master that I've now set free from and say he was great, and tomorrow I'll go to my new, uh, the new one that delivered me, and I'm going to go back and forth. It makes no sense, and that's what idolatry does. It doesn't make sense. It's about something deeper. It's something deeper than that. But we got to grapple here first that the stink is not God. It's us. You know, the judgment is a judgment on evil. Evil is the stink. And that stink, like my body odor, comes from us. So Moses is confident in God's character. Moses is confident that he is a righteous judge and that God really wants to start over from, with Moses like he did Abraham because he's looking for a righteous remnant. But Moses uh, says, no, stick with them, and then God changes. So we've talked about the stink is foreign to us. We've talked a little bit about does God stink? We've answered no, the, the source is us. Let's keep going here uh, with verse 19. Moses then comes down to the mountain, and this is what happens next. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. So he finally saw what God saw. Okay, he finally gets the stakes involved here. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. These, He saw the violation of God's law and his response was anger, and he throws down, violates God's law. So he's now participating in the sin, though it's totally different. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. So they would excrement it, and they could not recover the gold. He's like, we're not going back and doing this anymore. Those gifts are gone. We're, we're getting rid of those. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, why did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who has a gold take it off so they may give it to me. And I threw it in the fire and pop, out comes this calf. (laughs) I mean, there's no way Moses would have bought that. Nobody bought it. Aaron is shirking his responsibility. He is shirking his responsibility. But let's just be honest here. Moses is... Is blowing it down too. Moses is now showing us what unrighteous wrath looks like. He's actually taking it out on the law of God and throwing it down. And so one of the things that we need to realize here is that the consequence uh, is that Moses um, is violating God's law as well. And there is going to be a consequence. He's not going to be able to go in the land. God explains that later. But God is looking for this faithful remnant, but Moses has just proved it's not him. So what I want to do here is let's just look at the deeper idols. Let's look at the the body behind the odor. Let's look at the individuals. First, let's look at Moses. He is triggered. He was triggered by the licentiousness. In that moment, he felt powerless. So his idol was power, and his reactive was destructive anger. With Aaron, what was his deal? Well, he sensed Moses' disapproval. That was his trigger. His idol, of course, was uh, approval. And the reason why he blamed the the people as a reaction and blamed luck on the the calf is because he wanted to keep Moses' approval. It was a dumb move. I'm sure it didn't work. The people, they were afraid. They were afraid of God and meeting with God. And then when they missed that opportunity, they were afraid because Moses and Joshua were gone for 40 days. And what do they want? They wanted security. So they made this surface idol, but their deeper idol was this security. And the way they coped with it was through pleasure. Now, it'd be helpful for you and me to be able to really look at ourselves. Me, I'll just go first. Outside of this text, but in general, a lot of times I'll go home, things might be in chaos. What do I do? I want to bring things back in control and I start becoming a taskmaster. Nobody's thankful for dad showing up, uh, cracking the whip, so to speak, because he's trying to get control. And everybody knows this is not just a simple way of saying, people, let's keep a little more discipline. Let's do this together. It's about becoming a taskmaster. I want you to think about a recent thing. Think about your life. What has been your trigger, the thing that's made you frustrated, the thing that's made you upset, the thing that just, uh, before you know it, you're reacting. And I want you to take it and look at it and, and explore exactly what is the idol you're serving? Is it power? Is it approval? Is it security? Is it control? Or is it something else? What is it? Is it that you don't have a peaceful home? It's that you're being taken advantage of. Is it that you're not appearing to be successful or that you really are not as strong as you thought you'd be and then suddenly you freak out? These are indications of the deeper idol, of the body behind the odor. The body behind the odor is the one that's responsible. Our sin is responsible for this. And so, you know, the source here, when we look at the source of the stink, we could say it's us. We're idolaters. Now, there's a great question coming up that Moses is about to ask. And it's this. Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? So what's he saying? He's contrasting it to the Egyptian God's side and says, Who's on the Lord's side? Are you on God's side, the Lord, or this false God, your idol's side? Which side are you on? Choose. And he says, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around them. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Watch this. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother." and his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 of the 600,000 men of people fell. So a half a percent of all the men uh, were the sacrifice for the whole group. They took the punishment for the whole group. Now, what you need to see here is, uh, here we go again. I mean, he's asking a fair question. But on the other hand, he's saying, "Come to me." He's giving them a chance to repent, and only one—the men from one tribe, only the men from one of twelve tribes—comes to him and says, "We're on the Lord's side." Everybody else was saying, "We're either on the Egyptian god's side, or we're going to do syncretism of both uh, this religion, Egyptian, and this new religion." Uh, God, we're going to try to fit all these two together. They weren't willing to be only on the Lord's side. And so that's baffling to us. Here we go again, though, this judgment. You're like, how could you do this? Well, it was a cost to the people. Look at the next verse, verse 29. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. When I read this verse, I was like, I can't believe that's in there. Because if I had to kill my brother, it would be a huge sacrifice. There would have to be huge dedication to God. But this was the question that really struck me, was if I had to kill my son. And then I realized... And that's exactly what God did. When Jesus Christ came, the only faithful remnant who lived a perfect life, who died a perfect death, he died on our behalf. And when he did so, our penalty for our sins uh, were removed. They were put upon him, and they uh, died with him. He rose to give us life. In other words, the penalty for our idolatry, for our sin, is not held against us. Christ's sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God for sinners. For those who believe, who believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins and rose from the grave, Christ satisfies the wrath of God for sinners. Therefore, God's not mad at you ever You see, what's happening here in Exodus is God is starting a new contract, a new covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. But today, we're under the New Covenant, which is a different covenant, all right? With the Mosaic Covenant, it's the first one where God said, here's what you have to do. You have to obey to get blessed, to get the land, to get me. Your behavior dictates your blessing." And he was looking for someone that could be faithful, a faithful remnant, first Moses, then others. But ultimately, that faithful remnant became Christ. And with the New Covenant, the Old and New Testament describe it as a different thing. It's a new thing. Instead of removing judgment, it satisfies judgment. The New Covenant is where the law is placed on our heart, Galatians 3, 24 through 26 says it's a tutor that leads us to Christ. And the new covenant says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. That's what it was about. And so what you need to realize when you really look at your life, if you go back to our graphic here, in your time and you're going through your life, at some point you come to believe that Jesus Christ bridged the gap. That the cross bridges the gap between the holiness of God and your sinfulness. And, and the cross is that bridge. Now again, this isn't that the cross is growing from one stage to the other. It's that your awareness of God's holiness and your awareness of your sinfulness increases the longer you go in life. And your awareness of that bridge and how big that cross is, the incredible span, gets As you mature, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, so does your worship as time goes on in your life. Many of us are called uh, to see this for the first time. And if you've never heard this, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, I want to say this is how the wrath of God is now fully satisfied. And what this means is that because of Christ, God's not mad at you anymore. Your debt has been paid. Your sin, your idolatry has been completely paid. It's been buried in the ground, and you're given a new life, a new self, Scripture describes it as, in order for you to really thrive, to experience life. And the law of God is now summarized with love God and your neighbor. And what that means is we die daily to ourselves to love God and love others. We're called now to love our enemies instead of to destroy them. This is the new covenant. And this was instituted when Christ died on the cross for sins and rose from the grave. Here's the bottom line. You must accept God as he is and yourself as you really are to get what your heart really longs for, grace. Let me say that again. You must accept God as He really is and you as you really are to get what you long for, the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. So the question is, are you on the Lord's side or your idol's side? Are you on the side of God that is your Savior of Jesus Christ who is the one that delivered you completely? Are you going back to that old ruthless master of comfort, power, control or approval is it is it something else that's driving you you need to choose i believe in the lord now i want to conclude with this three weeks ago my dad passed away and i had a big conflict with my dad it was really bad it got to the point where our relationship had ended And this three-year relationship for two years, uh, I knew uh, he was really in the wrong, and he really was. But what happened was that bitterness set in for me because I wanted justice. It was unjust for my dad to be doing what he was doing. But what happened was I, in the end, came back to the uh, realization that God is just, and he's loving. And what that allowed me to do was take him off of my justice hook and put him on God's to forgive him. And about two years in, I finally said, Lord, everything that I've expected of my Heavenly Father, I officially put on you, and I take my dad off of my justice hook. I'm going to let you deal with him because you're the ultimate judge. Well, guess what happened? About a year later, my dad... uh, did more than receive judgment. He received grace. <laughs> and my dad, through the through key questions by his pastor, turned and relented and changed his ways. And I was restored in relationship with my dad. For the last eight years, I've had my dad back and I never thought I would. And I just want to tell you that this stuff makes a difference. Believing in a loving and just God, makes a huge difference in your life, in your relationships, in your ability to thrive. Many of us, though, get stuck. We get stunted growth. If you go back to our chart, a lot of times we say we only believe in part of what we read in the Scriptures. So, for example, let's take two ideas. I believe in a God of judgment, of love, not of judgment. So we might, many of us believe that. We're trying to make a you know, make that work, even though intellectually it doesn't, and we just kind of stay there. Or we say people are not completely sinners. They're they're basically good. What we do is we can see a little bit of distance sometimes between us and God, but the magnitude of the cross doesn't grow because our awareness of God and our awareness of self is not increasing. What has to happen is we've got to fully accept God as He is and ourselves as we really, really are to get what we really want, which is grace. And that's what we get. John 1 says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he gives us grace upon grace upon grace. Like wave upon wave, he cleanses us from our sin. And our old idols that may have stunk uh, are thrown away or are cleaned. They are put in their rightful place. And so I want to just Beg you to, to not to try to just stand in judgment of the judgment of God and try to be like God. That was the temptation for Adam and Eve. But to repent. But to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is hard to come to terms with our stink, but I thank you today that you have. You've helped us come to terms with who we really are. Help us accept you on your terms. And even the questions that we may not have answered, help us pursue those, give us more wisdom and insight, the scripture, but ultimately help us get to the place where we know you are our heavenly father. And you bring grace upon grace because of the love of Jesus Christ that's poured into our hearts. Help us live today, sacrificing our idols in order to love others uh, better. Help us move forward knowing that one day Jesus Christ will come and He will wipe wipe away every tear. Every call for judgment will be final. and um, And a new kingdom will come where we will live forever giving glory to Him. Father, we pray as Jesus... Uh, claims the whole earth for his glory and renews all of us and everything, makes a whole new earth. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would lead and guide and direct as we look forward to that day. And yet we stand free from a master, from an idol that was cruel. Thank you so, Father, for this deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.